Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, a feminist, client-centered, sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we tackle a topic that impacts our sexual and reproductive health by inviting members of our community who work specifically on the subject. Reproductive Left covers a variety of issues, including, but certainly not limited to, reproductive rights, feminism, access to services, sexuality, gender, and relationships. To wrap up our show, we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. Be sure to stick around for it. Hello, and thanks for listening. On today's show, we're going to be discussing the choice to be child-free. We'll do some myth-busting and discuss some of the stereotypes that the child-free experience. If you've listened to our podcast before, or if you've happened to, to be here listening when I promoted the show back in December, I think, during the Pledge Drive, some of this will sound familiar. Here with me is Dr. Amy Blackstone. She is not a stranger to Reproductive Left, but we will cover some new grounds today. A little bit about Amy. She is a professor of sociology at the University of Maine and is the chair of the sociology department. She is one of my professors at school, actually, and was fabulous. In addition to her research on the child-free choice, Amy blogs with her husband Lance about their choice to be child-free. Their blog's called We're Not Having a Baby. And she's also a founding advisory board member of Feminist Reflections, which is a blog hosted by the Society Pages. I'm really happy to have Amy on the show today, and I hope you all enjoy our discussion about the choice to remain child-free. Hi, Amy. Thank you for being on the show with me today. Hi there. Thank you for having me. So we did um, previously play a recording from your interview that you did on our podcast a couple months ago, but and we did talk about child-free and the childless, but I do want to start with having you um, t- discuss that again for our listeners that didn't hear that interview. So could you talk a little bit about the difference in the terms child-free and childless. I can. Um, and it's an important difference. So I'm glad that you asked about that. So there are uh, people who are parents and have children <laughs> and people who are not parents and, and don't have children. And often we think of the people who don't have children as childless, which is technically true. They are childless. They are without children. Uh, but there are increasingly more people who have made that that an explicit choice. They've chosen not to become parents. They've chosen not to have children. And often those people refer to themselves and prefer to be referred to as child-free rather than childless. And um, it's not uh, meant to be a statement against children, (laughs) but it's meant to be sort of a positive way of of embracing a choice that was made. And I think as a researcher, I think that the distinction is really very important. Um, As someone who studies the experiences of people who've chosen not to have children, you can imagine that those experiences differ from those of people who don't have children but want them. So uh, the, the childless, uh, that term is generally used to refer to people who don't have children but want them or plan to have them at some point. At some point. And child-free, again, is uh, a term 
used to refer to people who've made the choice not to have children. And now you said your research really focuses on on adults who've chosen not to have children, so the child-free? Correct. Um, how do you find uh, the people to interview, and how, how do you sort of know they have chosen to be child-free and aren't, aren't actually childless? Good question. Well, I've been studying this for a while now, so uh, it's easier to find people <laughs> to interview now because I, I'm, I'm in the community. Uh, there, there's a really active online child-free community, so, so I, have, uh, I know many more child-free people than I once did. When I first started doing this research, I really relied on my own personal networks. So as someone who herself is child-free, who's made the choice not to have children, I do happen to have other friends who've also made that choice. So uh, in all honesty, it was a, um, I, I used good old snowball sampling methods and started with people I knew and asked them if they knew others who, who were child-free. And uh, my, my sample of people who I've interviewed has grown over time that way. What are some of the questions that you ask them about their lives? Um, so, oh, you also asked how do I know if they're child-free versus oh, childless. Yes. Um, so I do generally always start by asking people to um, talk a little bit about how how it is and why it is that they made the choice not to have children. And, and um, that's an opportunity for them to, to be clear that, yes, it was an explicit and intentional choice. So we sort of get that out right away. Um, and I, I'm really interested in... In a couple of things, one, I, I I'm interested in in the process that that people um, through which people decide not to have children. So, is it a process, or it, is it a I woke up one morning and suddenly, you know, had this epiphany that I don't want children. It's usually the the, the first thing, not the second. <laughs> it is often a process for people that occurs over time. Um, I'm also a sociologist of gender, so I'm always interested in how that process may differ for men and women. Um, which, you know, you would expect that it probably does because we're socialized differently. And uh, also very interested in social responses to people's choice. So for those who've, who've chosen not to be child, or not uh, chosen to be child free, uh, what do their families think about their choice? How do their parents feel about the possibility of not having grandchildren? Um, are the, uh, have they struggled to find friends who understand their choice or do their friends understand their choice? What's it like for them in the workplace? So uh, really interested, again, in, in sort of social responses to the choice. It's interesting that you say it's different based on gender. I just, I'm often just thinking about women. I feel kind of bad saying <laughs> that if I work at a women's health center. And so, Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would imagine that it's a very different experience for men and women. Um, for women in our culture, it's sort of a huge part of womanhood is motherhood. So yeah. to, to decide not to take that path, there must come, it must come with some uh, stigma or stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, in, in the interviews that I've done and then also in the research that I've read about, about child-free people and their decisions, um, for women it can – it's sort of – Many women grow up as girls uh, assuming that they will be mothers and being told that they will be mothers, that, that that's sort of a natural role for them to take. So you, so it's not uncommon to assume, at least in our culture, that if you're a girl and a woman, one day you will become a mother. So to sort of um, come to a place where you realize, oh, that's not, that's not a choice that fits 
me um, can can be a little bit of a challenge and feel. I know I, I certainly struggled with that as a child-free woman. Um, had That was actually one reason that drove me to do this research was I started seeing all of my friends have kids and started to think, what is wrong with me? I mean, why am I not having this maternal instinct that everybody talks about. It turns out that's not, that's, that doesn't exist. Um, but I, th- th- certainly there's a strong social pull for women to want to be mothers. And, and um, yeah, so it can be a struggle. And certainly it is for men too. I mean, I think we're all raised to um, assume that we'll be parents one day, but I think there is more uh, tied. Culturally, we t- tend to think that being a mother is more essential for women, um, being a parent's more essential for women than it is for men. I think when I was young, I always assumed I'd have kids. I never had this pull to have kids, but I just assumed it would be part of my life. Mm-hmm. And then as I got involved in women's rights and feminism, and I was kind, it would kind of became an option not to. So now I'm more like, well, do I want to or don't I want to, that I don't know if everybody gets that experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel really lucky that I live in the time and the place that I do because it's only for that reason that I'm able to make the choice not to be a mother. So you said that there are some that you like to do research on people's experiences, how their families react. What are some of the stereotypes that people get? So one of the biggest ones is you must be selfish, that, that you're doing this because you don't really care about people. Um, you you must hate kids. That's another one that we hear a lot. Uh, let's see, other stereotypes. That, well, the selfish one is really interesting to me. Uh, just a, an anecdote. Well, it, it's a, a truth from some research. Um, if you look at how child-free people spend their time, um, they actually volunteer in their communities more than parents. And that's not to say that parents are, are terrible people. <laughs> They're great people. Um, it makes sense that the child-free volunteer more than parents because they probably have more time to do that. But I love to pull that out when I hear the you're selfish um, stereotype. So there's the you're selfish, you must hate kids, you'll die alone. Um, oh, let me th- those are some of the, the, the biggest ones. <laughs> and are... I assume most of them are not true. I Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is true that there are people who've chosen not to have kids who, who prefer the company of adults who would rather not spend time with kids. But I think to make the bold claim that the child-free hate kids is, um, well, that is definitely wrong. I, in my own research, uh, about 25% of the 46 men and women that I've interviewed actually have chosen careers um, that work with children, so they're they're elementary school teachers, counselors, um, police officers, uh, uh, um, social workers. So they you know went into their career choice knowing that they wanted to contribute in a positive way to the lives of children. So to to make the claim that child free hate children just um, just isn't true. <laughs> So they are caregivers in different ways. Absolutely, yeah. And even those who, you know, haven't chosen careers that work with children, uh, many of them have relationships with children in their lives, either the friend, the children of their friends or with nieces and nephews. One that I'm always interested in, so I am in my mid to late 20s, and it's actually talking about children is coming up in my life more often. My friends and I are discussing it, which brings up this question of the biological clock. And I got a funny text message from a friend the other day. She 
said, I found my first gray hair. Why does this make me all of a sudden want babies? <laughs> and I laughed so hard. Um, so is this a thing that really does happen? Um, well, so it's, it's um, I, I always have to be sure I understand what people mean when they refer to the biological clock, because certainly um, biologically we age and there is a time at which um, we, it's no longer possible for us as women to have children. So certainly there's a biological clock in that sense. There's a period during our lives when we're able to become pregnant and carry a pregnancy to term. And then there's a period after which that's not possible. Um, but in terms of a drive to have children, I think another way that people use the term biological clock is my clock is ticking and I hear it loudly and, and I feel this like innate drive to have children. And there really is not any scientific evidence to show that women have an instinctual drive to have kids. Um, I, I think sometimes that's blasphemous for people to, to hear or to say, <laughs> or for me to say. Um, there, there is, you know, certainly evidence of a, um, a nurturing instinct that kicks in once a woman becomes pregnant and after she has a child. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm not denying that oxytocin exists or anything like that. But um, the, the drive to have children uh, is, is really distinct from the drive to nurture your children once you have them. And uh, again, there's not really any evidence to show that we have an instinctual drive to have children. One of the other stereotypes that I hear a lot is that you'll regret that you'll regret the choice. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. I think that comes with this idea that we'll, if you don't have kids that you'll die alone. Mm -hmm. You'll regret it because you'll be lonely. Right. Um, is there research on – so in the past, it's been often that kids take care of their parents as their parents age. Mm -hmm. Is there research on what happens to adults who don't have kids and where they get that care? Yeah, um, there is. There, there isn't a lot. So this is a pretty new topic that, for people to study. And much of the research on adults without kids um, – it makes has has the flaw of not making the clear distinction between childless and child free. So a lot of times when I talk about research findings, um, I'm talking about a group that includes both people who chose not to be parents and people who aren't parents but wished that they had been. Um, but anyway, there's a, there's there is a study um, that shows that older people without children. Um, actually have more extensive social networks than, than parents do, and that they're able to rely on um, members of their community, friends, um, people in their social network for care in a way that, that parents might rely on their children. Uh, that particular study doesn't distinguish childless from child-free, so I, I can't say particularly about the child-free how they might differ, but um, certainly there is some evidence that, that the child-free fare uh, well as they age. Um, there is evidence to show that they don't regret their choice. Um, this is another one of those tricky questions in the research because there is some research to show that um, childless men in particular um, experience greater loneliness than other, um, other men and than women uh, with children and without children. Um, but that work again, doesn't distinguish the childless from the child-free, so it sort of raises, I, I, there's always, always a red flag for me when I see a study that makes a claim about people who are not parents and doesn't make that distinction. <clears throat> so you said that they have strong community, yeah. which is a great 
segue into talking about your blog and your Facebook page. Uh Um, Let's see. We're not having a baby, child-free adventures in a child-centric world. First of all, I love following your blog and your Facebook page. Um, You you created this with your husband, Lance. Yes. Will you talk a little bit about what, why you decided to start this really fun project? Sure. Yeah. So we've been doing it um, almost two years. April 1st will be our, we're not having a baby's two year, two year birthday. Um, It's funny in retrospect, I wonder why we chose April 1st. We've been asked when we first launched the blog, um, a couple friends said, well, did you choose April 1st because you really are having a baby? (laughs) (laughs) And no, it just was a random date. But um, so we've been doing it for a couple of years. And we had a, a couple of goals. I mean, one, uh, we live in an area um, that, you know, isn't super populated. <laughs> so to find other people like us, other people who've made the choice not to have children, they're out there, but uh, we were struggling to find them. And we wanted um, a sense of community with, with people who were like us in that respect. So we, we started the blog in part as a way to just sort of um, – establish a virtual community of people who are child-free, have a little camaraderie and community with those people. Um, We also had the goal of helping to uh, challenge the myths about the child-free, some of which we've talked about already. And one way that we do that is to share some of our own experiences as a child-free couple. But I also use the blog as a way of sharing um, what I know about the social science research on child-free people and sharing my own research. Um, We have a a section of the blog where we invite our readers to share their own stories, which has been really one of actually the more popular sections of the blog. I think people appreciate hearing um, how other people made the choice and what their experiences are as child-free people. So we had mostly um, camaraderie, some commiseration, and a little bit of education. Those were our primary goals. And you, <clears throat> in addition to the Facebook page, you have a community group as well? We do. Um, that has not been uh, quite as active in the in the last year or so, in part because I um, our jobs have gotten a little crazy. <laughs> But we do have a We're Not Having a Baby Central main group that uh, has met in Bangor on occasion. And and we have a private Facebook page for that group. And um, that's still active. People are still um, communicating with each other. And I think what's nice is, well, um, I think originally our hope was that we'd have monthly gatherings or something of this group. Um, people in the group have made connections with each other. That And, and I, I understand that people in the group have formed friendships uh, that they may not have had they not had this uh, way of meeting other um, similar people. So that's that's really very cool to me. That's great. Yeah. Where do you see this project going? Um, so that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, my my big dream would be for the choice not to have children to be far less controversial than it is, um, and maybe something that doesn't need to be talked about so much. <laughs> so, you know, maybe maybe one day we won't have a need for the blog. I mean, I think we still have a long way to go. One of my um, research interests, and I have to admit one of my personal soapbox issues, is uh, that we need to 
reconceive how we think of families and recognize that family, um, children are, are a wonderful and important part of families, but they're not a requirement for families. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the day that we recognize that people form families of all kinds, some of which include children and some of which don't, uh, is the day that we won't have the need for the blog anymore. <laughs> Until then, um, we'll keep blogging. <laughs> I hope that day comes, but I do love wa- reading your blog, so <laughs> I'll oh, be well, sad when yeah, it's gone. <laughs> it'll be, it's a, we have a while to go. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to go back to talk a little bit about um, the choice to be child-free, which we, we talked about in the beginning, because unfortunately in the U.S., that's not a right that everybody necessarily has. Um, Doing work in reproductive rights, I know that abortion access and just access to birth control um, is limited, especially in rural or um, poor communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, 87% of counties in the U.S. don't have abortion providers, and I know also one in four Four women who are on Medicaid are forced to continue unplanned pregnancies due to not having the funds to to get services. Um, I guess I'm wondering if the child-free community is part of like a reproductive freedom work or advocating for access to reproductive health services. Yeah, uh, there definitely is a um, pretty solid community. Uh, contingent in the child-free community that is um, active in reproductive justice issues. I, I'm um, So it's not, I wouldn't say that everyone in the child-free community is, but I think um, many of us recognize, as I said before, that we're, it, we're pretty privileged to be able to make this choice, and um, not everybody is, and that's a problem. Well, I wanted to just thank you for being on the show today. Um, I wanted to just say how grateful I am for the work because I agree that I want to live in a world where every person gets to make that choice on whether or not to become a parent and that it's an active choice, not um, they just become parents because that's what they're supposed to do. And having spaces where you see women and men living fulfilling lives without kids is, I think, really important. And I'm lucky to also have people in my life who chose to have kids who are living happy and fulfilling lives and be able to make that decision for myself. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been it's been great. And here, here to everything that you just said. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, Listeners, please stick around. We'll be right back to answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment with nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRozier. Welcome to Ask Mabel with nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRozier. Today we're going to answer a couple questions about long-acting reversible contraception since we've been talking about the child-free. Our first question is, I've heard that IUDs or intrauterine devices can injure your uterus and cause infections. Terry, is that true? 
I think there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there regarding intrauterine devices or intrauterine contraception. Um, it's a very safe method, uh, greater than 99% effective in prevention of pregnancy. The risk of injury to the uterus is actually extremely low. Um, there is a risk of about 1 in 1,000 inserts that at the time of the insert, the um, uterus might be perforated or receive a small puncture from the insertion uh, procedure. Um, with that would require the IUD be removed, but again, that's an extremely uh, low-risk situation. And even women who have had cervical or uterine surgeries like a C-section are still candidates for an IUD. The risk of infection is actually very um, low as well, and I think that's another myth that has existed. Um, there's a transient or small risk at the time of insertion that an infection um, might occur uh, as a result, actually, of the insertion technique. Uh, but that's such a low risk that we don't even uh, have to use antibiotics as part of the um, IUD insertion process. So it's a great method. Most women can uh, qualify for an IUD uh, insert um, and gives them up to uh, 10 years of contraceptive benefit. Uh, there are three IUDs on the market right now in the United States. Two are hormone-containing, the Skyla and Mirena IUDs, which are good for um, three to five years. And then the Paragard, which is the non-hormonal IUD, is the one that gives you up to 10 years of contraceptive benefit. Um, the Mirena and Skyla IUDs do carry a slight increased risk, though, of ovarian cysts. So if that has been your history, that might not be the best choice of an IUD for you. But IUDs are great and are a wonderful method that you don't have to think about. Great. Thank you. Our next question is, um, what is the implant and is that a safe method to use? The implant that's available uh, currently is called Nexplanon, and this is a hormone-releasing birth control implant that's placed under the skin of the upper arm uh, for women who prefer a long-acting option. Um, once inserted, it gives you 99% uh, protection against pregnancy for a period of three years. Uh, you may choose to have it removed prior to that if you decide to uh, become pregnant or you wish to use a different method. The um, most common side effect of the Nexplanon uh, is a change in your normal menstrual bleeding uh, pattern. Um, some women will find that they have uh, more spotting uh, during the first year, um, and one out of ten women do stop the implant because of this unfavorable change in their bleeding pattern. The use of Nexplanon may also increase your chance of serious blood clots, especially if you have uh, other risk factors such as smoking. If you smoke and want to use Nexplanon, try to quit, and um, that will lower your risk of uh, blood clots. And one last question for the child-free out there. I know I do not want to have children. Is it safe to be on a hormonal birth control for a long time, or is it better to do a sterilization? Women can be on oral contraceptives, um, literally, if they're generally healthy, as long as they need birth control. Um, truly right through until they stop having periods and are menopausal, therefore not for any further risk of pregnancy. The 
option to do a sterilization, though, is certainly available to a woman. Most um, providers um, and insurance companies will cover sterilization procedures after the age of 21. So it's not that one is a better choice for you than another. It's that if you have a sterilization done, it typically would be considered a permanent procedure. Whereas if you were to uh, avoid sterilization, stay on an oral contraceptive or another form of of contraception um, until menopause, then your options are always open for you to make the decision uh, or not. Um, It gives you more uh, opportunity to change your mind. A lot of women will ask also if it's necessary during their, you know, long-term use of birth control pills, uh, if it's necessary to take an occasional break. And actually, we don't recommend that occasional breaks be taken. It's not necessary. There is no benefit, and it may actually increase the risk of an unintended pregnancy. Great. Those are all the questions we have for you today. Thank you so much, Terry, for being here to, to answer those questions. Listeners, don't forget, we love to hear from you, so please email educate at mablewadsworth.org if you have any questions. For more information about Mabel Wadsworth Center, visit www.mablewadsworth.org or Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center on Facebook. Thanks for listening to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. I'm Abby Strout. Tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month at 4 p.m. right here at WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming everywhere at www.weru.org.